Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. In association with Viatel Technology Group, IT leaders breathe easy with Viatel Managed Cybersecurity. Viatel.com. This is News Talk. Yeah, you're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, what happens if you fall for a Revolut scam? Sinead Ryan will join me to discuss the consumer protections that are in place. We'll find out what disruption the digital services bill will have on the tech companies based here in Ireland. And I'll dip into the mailbag to answer your tech questions. As ever, if you want to get in touch, drop me an email to techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But I want to start this week with Revolut scams. On Tuesday evening, I was sitting at home when an SMS of all things landed on my phone. And here's what it said. Revolut in capital letters. We have restricted features within your app until you have completed a ID selfie check. Visit revolut-ire-support.com to confirm your identity. Now, I knew instantly it was a scam because of a few things. Number one, it came from an 085 number. Number two, the typos within the copy of the text and the URL within the text were just complete red flags. And number three, Revolut has repeatedly said they will never send messages of this nature to customers. If steps need to be taken to verify your account or do something with your account, you'll get a push notification or a notification within the app. But I was curious and I had a bit of time to kill. So I clicked through, which let's just say this very clearly, you should never do. Never, ever click on a link that comes in via text or via email I was doing it in the name of research from a dummy device and I used all dummy details. Anyway, here is what happened. I was brought to a capture screen to verify that I was a real person. Then a legit looking Revolut logo appeared before a prompt to log into my account via my registered mobile number. Now, at this stage, I didn't get a verification or a 2FA or a multi-factor authentication prompt at all. Uh, It just brought me to another screen. It prompted me to put in my Revolut pin. So I put in fake four digit pin. And then it asked me to confirm my personal details. Now, had I put in my legitimate information, these scammers would have had, here's the list, my full name, my email address, my date of birth, my address, my air code, my device details, and my Revolut pin. That's an awful lot of information that could potentially be handed over in a matter of minutes. Now, again, just to state, I didn't hand over any real information. I knew full well it was a scam. But I got to thinking about those who may have fallen victim to these types of texts or other equally sophisticated scams. And I want to bring you an email from a woman who wants to remain anonymous. She emailed me here at the show and she said... Hi Jess, I was scammed out of just shy of €2,000. I got a call from someone who said they were an air representative. I'm currently looking to find a fault on my broadband line, so I thought it was legit. The rep asked me to download a quick share app, which I did. I was told that a refund of €345 was due. They asked for my bank or Revolut details to send the money. I just opened my Revolut account and €930 was gone. I was in shock. I opened my app again and another €930 was gone. 
I wasn't asked for a security number to ensure I was happy to send that amount. The money was just taken. I reported the incident to my local Garda station straight away. I feel like a total fool since this incident. It took a long time for me to earn that money. I haven't slept properly for days. I'm riddled with fear and anxiety since this happened. I refuse to answer a phone call unless I know the number now. And I'm afraid to use my Revolut account since. Now, this is obviously incredibly upsetting on so many fronts. Uh, This is a huge amount of money. And it's that thing of feeling like you're doing the right thing by engaging with a service provider, being duped and conned out of money. It's just not nice on any level. I got on to Revolut about it. And here is what Revolut said to me. Revolut takes the protection of its customers extremely seriously and is fully aware of the industry-wide risk of customers being coerced by organised criminals. We are very sorry to hear about this case or any instance where our customers are targeted by ruthless and highly sophisticated criminals. Revolut is deeply concerned that the large number of frauds are being enabled by criminals using fake social media adverts, fake texts and, in this case, fake and spoofed phone calls. Banks and financial institutions are often the last link in the fraud chain. And so by the time the customer is authorising the transfer, the fraud has already happened. Revolut and other financial service companies work hard and invest heavily to protect and support customers. But it's also vital that criminals are stopped at the source from using convincing looking phone calls, texts and social media advertisements. Otherwise, they will only step up their efforts to trick people into handing over their money. Sinead Ryan, consumer columnist and presenter of The Home Show here on News Talk, is with me now. Sinead, uh, obviously this is, as I said a second ago, a very upsetting and distressing case for our emailer. I'm just curious, do the digital banks such as Revolut offer the same level of protection as the traditional banks when it comes to cases like this? Um, all banks know that somebody is far more likely to be scammed out of their money by voluntarily giving over their card details or access to their bank account. It is very, very rare for a hacker to come in and burst into your bank account and steal your money, in which case the bank would be culpable. And they get attempted attacks like that thousands of times every month and they they manage to them. So unfortunately, they're left in the position where when a customer loses money because they've given over their details to a scammer, even if they are purporting to be from a company or the government or a legitimate organisation, the banks will argue and they do argue that this isn't their fault. They have the account there. A demand has been made upon it by the owner of that account and they are legally obliged to follow it through. Now, sometimes, of course, they do pick up that this is an unusual transaction. All banks have uh, customer teams that look after um, alerts where, you know, you have money going to foreign bank accounts or you have an extra large transaction. And very often they will contact the customer and say, look, we've just received this alert. Are you sure you want to go ahead with it? But they can't pick up every single one. Yeah, I think we're probably more aware of text and email scams. But the example in this case is somewhat different because it's a caller purporting to be from a legitimate company and our listener felt somewhat blindsided by it. That's a very frightening position to be put in. It certainly is. And 
you know, that complaint uh, that was received there is not, unfortunately, not uncommon. There are lots and lots of uh, instances where people get exactly the same. I mean, in this case, it's it's um, a communications company, but, but we've all seen those texts coming through from purporting to be from the toll bridge company or from revenue or from you know, on post or somebody's delivering something. And it's really hard to work out what's a scam and what's not. Uh, now, look, I, we have also seen examples where Irish-based banks, and I'm talking here about our main retail banks, AIB, Bank of Ireland, Permanent TSB, very often, uh, you know, may take a business view that they don't want the publicity or they don't want to, you know, be on ra- programs like yours, uh, defending a position where one of their customers has got scammed. And they could, for goodwill reasons, say, we'll square this up, we'll make a refund to them. But they certainly don't have to. And the customer wouldn't have legal rights in that regard. So Revolut in saying, look, we're awful sorry this happened to her, but it's nothing to do with us. Um, You know, to some extent, that is the case. And they do not have to go any further than that. Now, the query I would have is, you know, if there is a conflict, it's often by the customer saying, look, I did not authorize this. I didn't put in my pin. I didn't use my fingerprint or whatever's required. And the company saying, well, you did. Here it is. Uh, and that's sometimes where, where people kind of get into a tussle. And that's exactly the reason that the financial services and pensions ombudsman exists uh, to tackle those cases and, and come to what is uh, probably the right view. The problem with the FSPO is that they are understaffed and it can take years in some cases for a query to get resolved. And that's really not good enough for people who find themselves in this position. Mm. And just to restate the point here, we're talking about almost €2,000, which is a huge sum of money. And I think one of my big concerns is that, you know, we're in an era where the majority of services we rely on are paperless. And people are being pushed to interact with apps and online interfaces. The fear factor is that the loss of confidence in this case, and I'm sure in other cases, will make it so much more difficult for someone like our emailer. And it could possibly put them off engaging going forward. Indeed, it's a very, very expensive lesson. And often that happens to be the case. I mean, it's of interest to note, actually, that the people who are least likely to be scammed on something like this, uh, as it happens, are older people. Uh, They're not as I'm not being I don't want to kind of make sweeping statements, but to a large extent, they are less tech savvy and they tend to be more cautious about parting with their money. So it is the younger people who can get caught up in these scams because they are so used to doing everything online. They tap, they pay, they go on apps, they swipe, and they're very, very uh, used to it. So I would say to people, look, if something has come out of the blue, if it's something that clicks up, pops up, arrives in your email, an urgent text, there tends to be some similarity in scams in these kind of what they're called authorised push payment or app scams. That's a temptation to get you to part with your money. Typically speaking, uh, it is something that's urgent. It has to be done now or else there's a really serious consequence. Now, that's actually rare in real life. OK, so if somebody's authorizing you to do something, you have to do this. It has to be done now. This is going to happen if you don't. That to me is a red light issue right there. So the best thing people can do is separately 
put down the phone, get the caller's name, you know, take what checks you have, never give out the details and just say, even if you want to be polite, and some people do, uh, you can say, look, you can understand that this can sound like a scam. I'm going to take your name and then I'm going to ring the company separately, whether it's Air or Easy Pass or Revenue. And I'm going to, if this is a legitimate call, I'd be happy to talk to you then and make whatever payments are needed. But if it's not, this is how I'm going to do it. Now, that's usually enough to get the scammer off the phone. Uh, and it just gives you a second step nearly against yourself. Uh, to make sure that that is a proper transaction, because when you actually ring the number and never, ever give the number they gave you because it could be compromised. So you go online, you look up the legitimate website and you phone or contact from there. Uh, If it's real, uh, you'll find out very, very quickly. You'll have your account number, you'll have your name. They will let you know if it's not. Well, then you've saved yourself uh, the possibility that you could have been scammed. Yeah, that is good advice and I'd echo every element of it. But one point I feel I need to bring up um, and it's on my mind because of an experience I had trying to contact my own bank a few months ago is that it can be very difficult to speak to a human at some of these service providers. Yeah, I agree with you, Jess. Uh, no no problems with any of that. It can be incredibly difficult. Uh, I mean, I myself, uh, and I write about this stuff all the time and the increasing number of scams um, that, that I come across. And even sometimes I will get a call or a text that looks legitimate and I'll have to, I'll think twice about what it is. So it is very hard. And, and what's worse is it's going to get harder because with the emergence of AI, which of course you know a lot more about than I do, uh, they can imitate voice, imitate accents, imitate um, people in your family. It's terribly, terribly frightening um, how that can happen. Um, So, uh, look, I don't have a fail safe solution except to say that the checks and balances you put in are ones you would take if somebody knocked on your door and purported to be from whatever, and they were asking you to make some financial decision. You you wouldn't just do it there and then on the doorstep. Uh, So getting it in call, text or email is exactly the same. You'd say, give me your card. I'm going to go away and think about it and I'll make my call then. Uh, And that's really the the best approach to take. Uh, and And that way, if you do get delayed and you can't get through to customer services, well, my top tip when I'm trying to get through to a company is to phone the sales desk, the new business desk, because you can be absolutely sure that's where all the staff are. Yeah, that is an excellent tip. Sinead Ryan, as always, thank you so much for your wisdom. Uh, If you have encountered anything similar or you need a bit of advice, you can email me at anystagetechtalk at newstalk.com. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we're going to take a closer look at the impact the Digital Services Act will have on big tech businesses based here in Ireland. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can drop me an email to techtalk at newstalk.com. That's the place for any questions, queries, comments. If you want to say hello, if you want to read along with us for our book club, we are reading John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Cameron and Kira will be with me in two weeks time to review it. Uh, so if you want to join in, read along with us, uh, get on top of it. Email me your thoughts about the book. The email address is techtalk at newstalk.com. Now, the Digital Services Bill and the Digital Services Act are terms that you've probably heard a little bit about, but you may not be completely au fait with. There is an awful lot of legislation coming into place to try and put manners on big tech and technology as a whole. 
I know I have a lot of questions about it all and I am delighted to say that Joe Joyce of Taylor Wessing International Law Firm based here in Dublin is with me now to explain pretty much everything. Uh, Joe, let's scrape it all back and start at the very beginning. Can you just give us an introduction as to what exactly the Digital Services Bill is, please? Yeah, absolutely. So the Digital Services Bill um, exists in order to tidy up effectively and implement some elements of the European Digital Services Act. Um, Because that's a regulation, it technically has what's called direct effect, which means that actually individual EU countries don't need to do much uh, to bring it into force. It just springs to life magically, much as the GDPR did a few years ago. Um, but the, the legislation is necessary to, uh, to, to tidy off a couple of things um, to ensure that uh, the uh, chosen regulator, um, uh, the Commission of Union, is, is appointed properly and um, to effectively ensure that everything is ready uh, for enforcement and proper regulation to start uh, soon. And the Digital Services Act, so the EU uh, regulation, is basically, it's it's quite a, a, a bold piece of, of law. It's designed to try and make the internet a safer and more trustworthy pay, uh, place, which is, I think we can all agree, laudable, but quite a big ambition. Um, it's It's... Uh, in some senses, covers an awful lot of ground. It covers all sorts of online businesses, organisations, uh, from the uh, delightfully named Vlops, very large online uh, platforms, to, um, to to much smaller organisations that are doing interesting things um, in the digital space. So it's going to be very wide-reaching and have big impact uh, right across the EU and indeed beyond, because if you have have a customer base in the EU, even if you're a big US company, uh, for example, you are definitely going to have to be complying with this as well. Yeah, and you referenced the GDPR there, which we're always talking about in this show. We, the consumer, the average consumer, I believe, are better off as a result of it. Will we feel the same benefits of the Digital Services Act and the Digital Services Bill, you know, in a day-to-day way? Or is this more going to put manners on big tech uh, and so on behind the scenes? Mm. It's a little bit of both. Um, One of the things that the Digital Services Act is designed to address is things called dark patterns. So effectively, when uh, website operators and large platforms use digital tricks, the way they position things, the way they they, pop up to times, they do things to encourage people to behave in ways that they they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, And I think we will start to see that um, there'll be much more transparency online, particularly from the bigger platforms that maybe have got away with things for for quite a while. Um, And I think one of the areas where we're definitely going to see um, a shift is that it's, there's going to be much more sort of focus on things like age verification and child protection whereas kind of up until now the general approach has been sort of if there's any sort of age bar- barrier it's mostly sort of self-certification and the uh, the approach both under the the digital services act but also under the new online safety code that the um, the commission here in Ireland are um, are, are currently consulting on that there's been very much a focus on being you know, practical meaningful steps with with some proper enforcement behind it so I think day to day the changes won't be won't be massively apparent but I think there will be 
a significant shift in, in kind of how easy it is for children to see inappropriate content. Um, I think it, it will become a lot harder. Um, and also there will be kind of new redress mechanisms put in place. And uh, also, you know, if, if, if you're concerned about content, if you want to have things taken down, the penalties for not having a proper kind of notice and takedown process on your website are going to suddenly become much more strictly enforced and serious for businesses that are operating online platforms. So I think we will notice a change. Um, it's a little bit, uh, I, I always compare it to the, the GDPR because um, you know, that's what's one of my areas of, of specialism. And it's interesting that you know, there was pre-existing data protection law uh, in Ireland and around uh, the EU before the GDPR came into force. But it was really that having that sudden big public push um, you know, lots of attention, focus on fines, and really, actually, you know, it's quite shameful for for organisations to be um, sloppy in their care of personal data. Now, I think it, it introduces sort of a moral element to data privacy, which really wasn't there before. And I think that you know, a similar effect will will, will happen with the DSA. That actually, um, we're still sort of seeing a, a, a sort of a crescendo now. Really, it's, it's you know, building up over some years that that um, you know, platforms, particularly larger platforms, um, you know, that are if they're not targeting children they're certainly not discouraging them from um from using their their sites are going to feel that there's not not only public pressure but public pressure that comes with kind of meaningful enforcement behind it so yeah i think we're definitely going to see some changes i think um we are definitely going to see some improvements unlike the gdpr because this is brand new law there really isn't a precedent i think it's going to be much harder for, for the new regulator um you know not least because they're also a broadcast regulator so they have other things to be doing um, but it's going to be hard for them to work out how they they, they work with the European Commission and how uh, they you know how do they engage with particularly the big tech companies because you know whilst they would I'm sure um, you know many of us would, you know many people would love to see them kind of you know beaten with a big stick over this actually if you want to get stuff done you've got to be a bit collaborative so I think working out exactly how that process man is managed and and um, is, is kind of set up is, is is still something that you know we're all keen to see. Yeah, and I think the uh, Online Safety Commissioner, Eve Hodnett, she was talking to us here on the programme a few months ago and she was saying that there is dialogue happening between the big tech firms. One thing that I'm curious about, though, is we know a lot of the big tech companies have their European HQ here in Ireland. Will they face extra headaches for having based themselves here under this legislation? Um, like, would you would would, they, would it be different if they were, you know, in London or in Manchester rather than Dublin, Cork, or Galway? Well, um, so yes and no. Um, they they will have different challenges for for, for being, being being based here in Ireland. Um, but the UK is going on its own journey, um, as as it often does post Brexit and similar legislation. So the Online Safety Act. Um, is is um, you know, being pushed forward there, and and so actually, uh, while there is a slightly different approach in the UK, the level of regulation will be will be very similar. And I think you know whether you're actually a you know, a large tech company or a relatively small Irish business, the UK is likely to be an important market for you. So you know, most organisations are going to have to start adhering to the UK law and the uh, the EU law. So yeah, having an EU headquarter situation. Will- won't make much of a difference because you will be caught if you have uh, customers in the EU. So actually, I think being based in Ireland, which is used to regulating big tech, obviously not uh, as, as we've all heard of, over recent years without uh, criticism. I think being being uh, headquartered here and actually you know, the, the, the new commission that's being set up is that they you know they are they are going on a hiring spree. They they are putting serious resource uh, into, into sort of, you know, getting ready to do this. 
the I think their aim is by the end of 2024 to have 250 full-time regulators, which will be about twice as many as the EU has um, for, for dealing with some of uh, the, the, the um, matters that will be on their plate under this regulation. So I don't think that there will be more headaches for organisations because they're based um, in Ireland, but uh, certainly they can expect quite active regulation. Mm. Um, you alluded to it there a second ago in terms of the cooperation and collaboration of big tech and other tech companies uh, when it comes to the enforcement and corrective measures under this legislation. We know that there have been huge changes at X, formerly known as Twitter, over the years and um Elon Musk has been very outspoken and very critical of Ireland in particular and some of our approaches to uh, regulating online media. Is non-compliance going to be an option here? Like what what happens if, and I'm not just putting this at the, at the door of X, but what happens if any of those big tech companies refuses to comply or play ball? Um, like where can it end up? Um, I mean, there is a real challenge when a really big player like X refuses uh, to engage the law um because to to a certain extent you know whilst there are massive fines uh, that can and and will be levied for for particularly for deliberate non-compliance or refusal to comply um actually you know extracting money uh, from companies that refuse to to pay fines voluntarily is a you know it could be a, an arduous legal process um really you know we are going to be quite heavily reliant on the f- kind of the shame factor that frankly if you aren't prepared to co- cooperate in, in what the eu and um, you know, national regulators believe is important legislation to ensure safety and transparency online then you know, shame shame is the alternative um it, it will uh, you know fines can be pursued through the courts if necessary um but i think the you know refusal to to engage at all is going to be unusual and i think x the, the leadership of, of x and the the operations um there are relatively unique um you know we're not seeing other social media platforms or other large tech companies uh, kind of out and out saying that they won't engage and i, and I don't think that that's going to become a pattern mm. Another thing that struck me in my conversation with Neve Hodnett um, was that, uh, you know, I, I suppose she was saying that they don't want to be going out issuing all these fines. The, ho- the hope is that everyone brings their house in order and the internet becomes a safer, happier place. How, I suppose, how realistic is that notion? Um, because we know even with GDPR, when GDPR came in, we're still seeing fines for things that you know, fall through the cracks or were maybe overlooked and so on. Will we get to the stage where everything is rosy in the garden at all times? Um, I'm afraid probably not. Um, And in the same way that I don't think we'll get to a stage in the context of data privacy in the GDPR where, you know, data breaches cease and people remember to use the BCC function when they're sending out important emails and laptops don't get left on trains. I think these things will always happen. Um, But you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good when it comes to um to to, to regulation and you certainly there's, there's certainly nothing to be said for refusing to try simply because we can't you know reach a you know a, a beautiful you know on safe safe online paradise 
I think we have to accept that, uh, you know, particularly as technology is is changing so rapidly, that the challenges that come with it are rapidly changing. The the Digital Services Act updates uh, the old e-commerce directive um, that, that's tw- over, over 20 years old now, that's t- the year 2000, that piece of legislation came into force. And one of the reasons that EU legislation tends to be a little bit uh, broad um, and, and often hard to interpret is because it has to sort of stand the test of time. So I don't think that um, we, we can assume that this, that, that either the Digital Services Act or the work of the Commission is going to magically make everything better. But I think, you know, we've seen that the GDPR has improved people's understanding of their privacy rights, their access to it. I think, you know, thinking of the types of businesses that, that I advise now compared to you know, 10 years ago when it was frankly much harder to get businesses to take privacy seriously. And I think in the same way that there has been no great incentive for online businesses to worry about safety security you know good practices transparency other than you know wanting to be able to say that we act ethically well i think it's going to be much harder for them to pull the wool over anyone's eyes if you know if they're not practicing what they preach soon so no i don't think we'll we'll we'll, you know the online world is going to become safe but i think it will become safer and i think that's good enough Mm. Uh, you mentioned at the top this is no small feat because the internet's obviously massive. There are new platforms, there are new websites, there are new apps coming onto the market every day of the week. But we're also having this discussion at a time when AI and generative AI is developing before our very eyes. Will Are these things coinciding at the perfect time? As more applications of AI are coming into the market, they'll have to function within certain parameters. Or has the horse already bolted and legislation is playing catch up? Um, a little bit of both, to be honest with you. Um, the, the horse has definitely bolted, particularly when it comes to AI. Um, and one of the challenges for regulations, but also the challenges for, for businesses, even those that really want to do the right thing, is that they're being hit with uh, not only a sort of a, a tsunami of digital change and new possibility but also uh you know a massive tidal wave of regulation sort of belatedly trying to address all of the different aspects in many ways i think the the, the gdpr was the precursor to this sudden wave of um of new legislation that we're seeing coming out of the eu and you know other other countries worldwide one of the challenges of operating an online business is that you can't just care about, you know, the, the, the jurisdiction that you're based in. You have to care about what's going on in the US, in Singapore, in, in the UK, um, as well as, you know, what's going on in Dublin. So it's it's it, it's very challenging to look at all this new legislation and think, right, th- does it does it coincide? Does it overlap? Is it complementary? Um, you know, you can end up, you know, a lot of, of, of what we're asking businesses to do involves better better accountability. So that's more record keeping, that's proper assessments of the risk. But do you do a different assessment under the DSA, under the uh, AI Act, as it will be soon, um, under the GDPR? How, you know, how can you manage your, your compliance in a way that, that, that covers all of these different areas at once? Um, without missing anything out and as regulators you know how do you decide where to draw the line um, so it's it's a really I think challenging environment but to suggest that this is you know this is you know completely taking us all by surprise I think I think you know, m- many of us feel like it's quite overwhelming at the moment but if businesses have been using um, you know machine learning and artificial intelligence for many years um, you know it, it, and talking about AI um, as, as if it's something kind of you know 
brand new that we you know we have to kind of get a hold on is it was a bit like talking about the internet a few years ago you know, you know oh gosh you know I remember as a, as a young lawyer you know being told that you know it's important that we you know sent off paper letters and filed physical files in court um as, as if we could kind of hold back the tide of of, of, legis- of of the internet forever and it's going to be a bit like that with AI these things are happening uh they're happening in a, in a way that feels like it's you know it's all at once but that doesn't mean that we can't get a handle on it if we try. When GDPR came in, I remember watching Mark Zuckerberg appearing before, I think it was one of the antitrust hearings in the US. And he was yeah. talking about how great GDPR is and how it would be brilliant if the US could implement elements of it. And ever since then, I've been kind of curious as to... Is it impossible to have the notion of implementing worldwide legislation or something of that ilk so that everybody is on the same page and you're not dealing with jurisdiction issues? I think that would be great and I'm all for it. Um, but I think we've, we've, we've learned from the lesson of the GDPR that uh, being being first out of the, the gate is a, is a really useful thing. And one of the reasons that the, uh, the EU was so keen to push the AI Act, for example, and get you know get that um, actually you know, out of out of the committee stages and, and properly onto the statute books before uh, you know, other other countries had had a, had a chance to really focus on the issue it's because they know that if you bring the the, the the legislation first and you say this has global effects, if you have if you're dealing with individuals, if you have a customer base in the EU, if, if then then this applies to you. Then ultimately, businesses in in the US and elsewhere will have to, to a certain extent, follow your lead. So I think what we will find is that if if the EU can can push its legislation out uh, and you know, set up meaningful, sensible frameworks, then there will be um, an extent to which it's as if that legislation has global effect. But uh, I think there's also it's also worth remembering that. You know, countries are different. People worry about different things in different places, um, and we sh- a one size fits all approach to law is quite hard to operate across just across the EU, where there are some you know, very different uh, cultural approaches. You know, it, I think people are often surprised, for example, under, under the GDPR. Uh, so, you know, what's considered sensitive data and what isn't? It's considered sensitive data if 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 I if I tell people about my religion, but not if I tell them you know what's in my bank account. And you know, that's that's you know, choices have to be made that 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 people will find you know, culturally strange if you try to have you know universal global regulation. So I think it's it's you know, it would be great to see uh, more consistency, and I think we are starting to see that. And actually, there's been so much um, kind of global discussion in and around AI that I think we we will uh, see at least um, you know, voluntary cooperation on that front, if if not, um, you know, really consistent legislative approaches. Okay. But the only th- the only thing I would add to that is that um, it's it's interesting um when big tech talks favorably about regulation and you know one of the challenges that that many organizations will have under the digital services act is that actually even relatively small businesses will have obligations that they have to meet additional paperwork there'll be a burden to that if you're a big tech company you love regulation to an extent because you can hire teams of lawyers and and um you know set aside vast amounts of money to get on top of it it can also you know it can become borderline anti-competitive if you are able to um to engage with it in a way that other organizations can't 
and you know you you can help shape it you can you, know, you operate within its bounds but but you determine where the you know where the benchmark is for enforcement in many cases but i'm always a little nervous when i see um big tech firms being very enthusiastic about regulation and say oh yes wouldn't it be great if we had you know, a universal approach to this because they they can do things in a universal way and that that suits them well but actually i think we do need to be sensitive to uh kind of national issues and the importance of being kind of regulated at a relatively low level in many cases. Joe Joyce, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we're going to dip into the mailbag and answer your tech questions. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the end to hear. That is, of course, Taylor Swift, the global sweetheart who seems to be getting credit and blame for pretty much everything in the world but that's not why I'm talking about her. I'm talking about her because she announced earlier this week that uh, her era's tour is going to be streamed on Disney Plus. Great news for Tay fans and I'm sure my next guest John Fardy. John how are you? I'm very well how are you? I'm good now thank you. Um, yeah so Tay bringing the era's tour to Disney Plus so tell me this, is like is that going to be a different show every night on Disney Plus or is it one-off? No, it's one-off. So we all know that she is an absolute mastermind, right? Yes. And so during, I can't remember how many nights that, that the tour was filmed, but they had cameras filming all of the performances from different angles. Yeah. Then she released it in the cinema. Yes, which my wife and daughter went to see and loved. Uh, and then she posted on her Instagram during the week that she found the perfect streaming partner. Uh-huh. So in other words, she got a hell of a lot of moolah and uh, yeah, she's going to bring it to Disney+. Plus. I hadn't heard that. That's interesting because there's a documentary which I think she uh, sanctioned at all, Miss Americana, yes. was on Netflix. Yes. So interesting. She's gone with Disney. She is. Yeah. My, that show, she's incredible. I know yeah. we probably have overload and all, but she is incredible. I still don't have tickets when they were, I was saying to my wife and daughter. That's not a platform for this. I'll sort them out. Still haven't yet. Are you listening? (laughs) (laughs) Tay Tay, if you're listening, chicken, will you just send John a few tickets? Uh, But anyway, that's not what I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to find out what is coming up on screen time this evening. Which added a thousand listeners in this week's Jane Allure figures. Congratulations, John. Thank you very much. I added five thousand, but anyway, not not. I apparently has to do with these handovers. It's just driving the it's driving the traction. So what I'm very excited about is there's a new series launched on Netflix on the eighth of February, which was Thursday of this week, called One Day. Yes, the beloved book all about this kind of, well, you can call it romance, but a will they won't they, and they you you see them on the same day every year over not a lifetime, but a period of time. And there's been a movie of that with Anne Hathaway, a good movie, and now they've turned it into a 12-parter on Netflix, Mm. which I found absolutely delightful. And I watched the entire thing. I'm not joking to you. It was so bingeable. It's delightful. It's true to the essence of the book, more or less. Now, I hadn't read the book in about 15 years, Mm. but my memory of it is it's very similar. I'm talking to the leads of that who are Ambika Maud and Leo Woodall, and they're great in it. And I'm also reviewing the week's new releases and a very inspiring is probably the right word if, if I'm not too wrong a Netflix documentary a short film 30 minutes long all about an unusual bond between a surrogate mother and an Irish lady 
one of whom happens to be Ukrainian. A, a fascinating story. So I'm talking to the directors of that. I've been seeing the one day uh, publicity machine yes. in full flow on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited about this. But you know what? I always get a bit nervous when a book that I like is converted either to a movie or a TV show. And it makes me happy to hear that it's kind of true to the book from what you can remember of the yeah, book. Yes, and my memory is a faulty thing. As we know. discussed many yeah. times. But yes, it is. And you're right, a beloved book you know, you got to approach these things with cautions, but I think they've done a great job. And in a way, this stands on its own because it's mm. 12 episodes long. They're all about 30 minutes. So it's long and it goes lots of different places. But that feeling of these two people, will they, won't they, they the actors and actresses capture brilliantly in this, I think, you know. And there's this glorious feeling of leaving college and life being ahead of you because they meet at their last day in college. There's a lovely feeling of the future's unwritten until it is written. Yeah, I think it is. It's a nice feel-good, break your heart, but get you emotionally invested, I yes, suppose, yes, type thing. absolutely. It won't change your life, but you'll smile. Oh, that's all we need. Absolutely. Um, you know, talking of books that have become TV shows and yes. movies, I had my niece up for a sleepover on Monday night because I was off on Tuesday. And we good watched... To, good to know everything. <laughs> I'm just not on the DOS, just in case anyone was wondering. Uh, but we watched Harry Potter. And it blows my mind because she's nine mm. and she knows all the words from the movies. Like she, she's like a mini me. It makes me so happy. But I still don't love the Harry Potter movies, even though I watch them all the time. And even though I love the books, mm. are like, are there, how hit and miss are the conversions from book to movie or book to TV show? Very hit and miss. And there's probably more misses than there are hits because unfortunately what often happens is people go, oh, well, movie companies. This made lots of money as a book. Let's mm. try and turn it into a movie. And that often doesn't work. However, talking the Harry Potter thing, to my mind, so the Lord of the Rings, you know, talking about what you were talking about, when I read them as a teenager, they, you know, without overstaying, it probably changed my life in some way. I mm. absolutely adore them. And 20 years later, I remember going to see the first movie in the Peter Jackson trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring. And I remember turning to my brother about 40 minutes in going, this is incredible. I to my, to my mind, that's the best ever because it was such, people were so prepared to be disappointed yeah. because there's such a fully realized world in the Tolkien books. What Peter Jackson did is incredible. It, it, it was beyond what people thought was possible. So to my mind, that's the best one ever. Okay, what would you suggest? Email me techtalk at newstalk.com. What is the best conversion from a book to a movie or TV show? And of course, you can hear more from John in just a few minutes. John, thanks so much. Thank you. Right, I promised before the last ad break that we would go through some of the emails that have come in to techtalk at newstalk.com. A quick reminder that every Tuesday here on Newstalk at about 11.40, I'm in with Pat Kenny answering your tech questions. You can send us a voice note on WhatsApp to 087 106 or email me techtalk at newstalk.com and I will do my best to get through as many as humanly possible. Uh, so let me just pull up the mailbox here. Probably should have done it before now, but your look and your listen. Uh, Damien has been in touch and he says, Hi Jess, my wife and I have just moved into our first home. We're with Virgin Media and the signal is excellent downstairs, but there are numerous black spots when we move up to any of the bedrooms. What would you recommend to eradicate these black spots, please and thank you? Well, firstly, Damien, congratulations. Uh, I hope the move went well and was stress-free and all the rest. Uh, You've got a number of options when it comes to improving the signal at home. There are Wi-Fi extenders. So TP-Link is a brand that is widely available 
and very well regarded. Uh, you essentially plug a device into the back of your modem and then another one in a, a part of the house where you've got no signal and it'll boost the signal um, and drag it around. Uh, my preference, however, would be a Wi-Fi mesh system. So there's a brand called Tendanova. Uh, they are pretty affordable and they work very well. It essentially creates a Venn diagram of connectivity around your house. So you won't have any drop-off points or black spots anymore. Um, as I said, they're called Tenda Nova. There's the MW3 for a smaller space or the MW6 for a bigger space. Uh, so there you go. You've got multiple options and I hope that helps. Uh, another one, Neve Donnelly has been on to me. And she said, hi, Jess, I heard you talking to Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live during the week and you were talking about your Apple Watch. I'm trying to get fit and I'm wondering if the Apple Watch is worth the investment. Is there much of a difference between the Apple Watch SE and the Apple Watch 9? Thanks so much. Neve. I am the biggest fan of the Apple Watch and I will say from the outset that I'm fully aware that they are an expensive piece of technology. I wear the Apple Watch SE, which my boyfriend bought for me. um, And I have to say, I am obsessed with it. It's probably the reason why I've stuck with iPhone rather than moving to an Android device, uh, because I just find it motivates me. I understand and can read the data very clearly. So I like that immensely. Uh, In terms of the comparison between the Watch SE and the Watch 9. So... The Watch 9 is the Notion's bells and whistles, top of the line version. It has a bigger screen. It has, you know, the always on display, certain kind of uh, aesthetic differences to the Watch SE. Beyond that, it does have more sophisticated health measurement technology. So, for example, it would have an ECG monitor built in. Uh, That's not something that... I'd necessarily need or want, which is why I'm delighted that I have the SE. The SE does everything I need in terms of monitoring my sleep, my steps, my exercise, uh, things like walk, steadiness and like other bits and pieces that I don't even need, but I'm glad that they're there within the health app on my phone. If you're someone who is looking to monitor your day-to-day fitness rather than your overall health, I would go with the Apple Watch SE. If you are concerned or want that level of insight into your overall health, then the Apple Watch might be the one for you because, as I said, you can get the uh, ECG and a few other more sophisticated health monitoring services there. Regardless of what model you go for, I think you will like it a lot. If you are listening to this and you don't want an Apple Watch at all, but you do want a fitness tracker and you don't want to spend more than 200 quid, There are plenty of options out there for you as well. The Fitbit Charge 6 is one that I've recommended to pretty much every single person uh, who works here in Marconi House across all of the radio stations because it's around €160, if not cheaper, in certain retailers. It has the ECG, so that's the heart monitor that the Notions Apple Watch that costs 500 quid has. It's smaller, it's neater, it's uh, got all the fitness tracking stuff that you'd want because it's a Fitbit, But Fitbit is also now owned by Google, so it's got all the smart tech built in as well. So you've got a few options there, right? You've got Fitbit Charge 6, which is around €160, if not cheaper. It'll give you very sophisticated health insights and is just neater. It looks less like a smartwatch and more like a fitness tracker. In the middle, we have the Apple Watch SE, which is the one that I have. 
and ticks all of the boxes for what I'd need and want. And then you've got the Notions one, which is the Apple Watch 9. Uh, so I do hope that helps inform your decision in some way, shape or form. Uh, if you are looking for a product recommendation or if you have a specific tech query, email me techtalk at newstalk.com or you can send me a WhatsApp voice note to 87 106 And that's it from me this week. Uh, if you missed any of the show, make sure you listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. Just search for Tech Talk. Hit subscribe so you never miss a moment. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's Newstalk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.